Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. We're going to be talking today, we're going to be taking a break from uh, Luke here for the summer uh, and look at a couple different things. But today it's a supernatural departure, a supernatural departure coming from Luke chapter 1 verses 6 to 11, which we read out a little bit earlier. Now I know all of you have heard of someone who likes to make a dramatic Uh, you know, entrance, someone who likes to come in late, they're all decked out, dressed out, all sorts of things. And then they would make their appearance, right? You know, they'd make their, their entrance. I I think of Elvis Presley. He was one who knew how to make an entrance. I don't know if any of you ever saw one of his concerts in person or on TV, you know, he would have the, 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 the theme song of Odyssey, you know, what is it? Odyssey 2021, something like that, or 2020. I don't remember the name of it, but you know, it had that stirring music that would come and slowly uh, build into a crescendo and then he would come on you know with with all the fanfares and so on and so forth but he also knew how to make a dramatic exit is he would leave and we would all wait for that those words Elvis has left the building some of you kind of remember that I grew up as an Elvis fan my dad was a big Elvis fan we got to visit Graceland several times but also we think of the dramatic exit nowadays is something I haven't tried yet it just doesn't work very well but is the the mic drop right you're done, you have a mic drop. I'm done, I'm finished, and you walk off the stage, many comedians and things and so forth. It's an expression of triumph for a successful event and indicates a boastful attitude towards one owns performance. It's a mic drop or it's that dramatic entrance. Look at me, it says. Though I don't, though I don't mean to attribute a boastful attitude towards Christ, he makes both a dramatic entrance and an exit through his earthly ministry and through supernatural events. Born of a virgin and wrapped in swaddling cloths at birth, he is translated into heaven while wrapped in clouds. Every year, churches and Christians around the globe observe and celebrate the various moments of Christ's life. We think of Christmas, Palm Sunday, Maudie Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter. But there's one event in the life of Christ that seems to be neglected in most churches, even here at OVBC, since my desire to finally do it, and that is of the ascension, the ascension of Christ. Think of it. When was the last time you thought about the ascension of Christ or even read about it? I mean, in churches today, there are going to be many churches that follow a liturgical year who will follow and think of the ascension today, but typically it doesn't get much play. Unless someone is talking about Acts chapter 1. But even then, the, 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 the key usually is on either whether he's going to restore the keys of the, or restore the kingdom, or they're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, or really going to the day of Pentecost, which is 10 days from now. But mostly we don't think of the, the ascension. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1. Verses 9 through 11, we're going to be looking at quite a few verses here as we go through, but this is our main one. We read it already. It's going to be here on the monitor. But again, as you always know, I want to encourage you to bring your Bible or even if you have your tablet or your phone. uh, Or as as one said, we watched a movie this week in small group called Church People. I recommend it to you, but the youth later says, now take out your phones and turn to, or I guess you would scroll to whatever, you know. We're in Acts chapter 1, 9 through 11. We're going to reread what we read out there. And when Jesus said these things, speaking to his disciples, and as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. We know them as angels. And said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Father, we just did a simple thing just to bring our eyes and to try to consider what that might have looked like. We, of course, it's nothing compared to the person of Christ and what he meant to those disciples. But Lord, we're looking now almost 2,000 years later, and we should be looking skyward. At least our hearts, if not looking for the skies for return, but our hearts, as scripture says, knowing that you promised to return for us. Lord, I I pray as we just consider this passage, as we consider your ascension, Lord, help us to be reacquainted with this supernatural event, this finishing, this dramatic exit from your earthly ministry. Your ministry is not done. It's now taken a different uh, realm and obviously with different powers and different uh, ways in which you now work. But Father, I pray that we would understand what the ascension means to us this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together in your name. Amen. The ascension is the rising of Jesus from the earth into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. After his resurrection, he had spent 40 days giving his disciples proof that he rose physically. Remember, he, he was eating with them. He was, he was uh, fishing with them. He was talking to them, so on and so forth, of his, uh, that he rose physically from the dead. And also teaching them about the kingdom of God. He, now, 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 again, we don't know all that he taught them. That's not recorded for us. And we know that they probably didn't remember or grasp everything he said. But now he's giving them specific instructions about the kingdom of God. This day happened 1,989 years ago and is celebrated 40, uh, 40 days after Easter and it fell on this past Thursday of uh, the 26th. So 1,989 years ago, if Jesus was crucified around 33 AD, was this past Thursday. One theology website describes the secret events this way. It says, after Jesus rose from the dead, he presented himself alive to the women near the tomb, to his disciples, and to more than 500 others. In the days following his resurrection, Jesus taught his disciples about the kingdom of God. Forty days after the resurrection, Jesus' disciples went to Mount Olivet near Jerusalem, and there Jesus promised his followers that they would receive the Holy Spirit, and then he instructed them to remain in Jerusalem until that Spirit came. Then Jesus blessed them, he gave his blessings, and he began to ascend into heaven. It is plain from Scripture, they go on to write, that Jesus' ascension was a literal bodily return to heaven. It wasn't just a spirit. It wasn't just a phantom. He rose from the ground gradually, or he rose from the ground gradually and visibly, observed by many intent onlookers, similar to what you and I just did out there with the balloons. As disciples strained to catch a last glimpse of Jesus, a cloud hid him from their view, And two angels appeared and promised Christ's return in just the same way that you have watched him go. It's a supernatural event. He needed no wings, no jet propulsion, no rockets, no launching pad. He didn't need Elon Musk to come up with some other different type of way to get him up there. Heaven met earth as he ascended up into heavens to join the Father at his rightful place. One theologian remarks that in scripture, clouds are often symbolic of God's presence. And I believe that's what we're seeing there is is Jesus is going back into the presence of the Father. In Exodus, we see a cloud leads the Israelites by day during their journey to the promised land. 
God speaks to Moses from a cloud at San Sinai. A cloud covers the tent of meeting the tabernacle when Yahweh glory, glory, uh, Yahweh's glory fills that tabernacle. A cloud overshadows the disciples at Jesus' transfiguration when the Father speaks and says, This is my Son, whom I'm well pleased. And then the second coming of Jesus is described as him coming down in a cloud with power and glory. So what we're meant to see here is that Jesus is in the presence of the Father as he ascends back up into heaven. There were others. Jesus wasn't the first one who was translated into heaven without dying, uh, though Jesus' uh, Jesus' death, but, but alive. We think of Enoch in Genesis 5 where it says that Enoch walked and was no more for God took him. We think of Elijah in 2 Kings, who went up in a flaming chariot. We think of, again, the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel 7, which we believe is Christ. It's prophesied that the Son of Man would come in the clouds. Jesus in Luke chapter 24 and Acts 1, we see, is in the clouds again going up. But then also in 1 Thessalonians, that Jesus will return in the same way. So scripture informs us that Jesus was ascended from the Mount of Olives. He was received in heaven by the Father, and he was seated at the right hand of God. The first council of Nicaea in 325 adopted what is called now the Nicaean Creed, which states that on the third day on the monitor that Jesus rose again in accordance with the scripture. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And God's people would say amen to that, would we not? For that's our belief, that's our confession of faith, that we believe that Jesus rose and came again. Now, this should not have been any surprise to his disciples, as Jesus had taught them that this day would come. You could imagine their look of surprise and maybe disappointment. And maybe even some excitement and also maybe just confusion and wondering, where is Jesus going? Now, could you imagine, it was you and I were just talking, and I'm giving you some instructions, and I'm blessing you. And as that happens, I begin to levitate in the air. You know, like, what magic is this? What in the world is going on? They have seen Jesus do many miracles, from walking on water, to turning water into wine, to doing all sorts of things. But just to begin levitating into the air. And not just a a few inches or a few feet, but he just continues to go. And they're probably like, what in the world is going on? You can imagine Peter saying, wait wait a second, can can I go with you? Maybe Thomas the same, wait a second, I have another question. But they sit there and they gaze until he's covered by a cloud and no longer. You can imagine maybe even just the breath just coming out, the air as they realize he's not coming down as the men say, He's not coming back yet. He will return, but not yet. Go to Jerusalem. We'll talk about that when we get into Acts a little bit more. But this should not have come to a surprise. In John chapter 7, if you want to write these down so you can look at them later, John 7, 33, Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. In John 8, 21, he said, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Speaking to others. In John 14, 28 and 29, he said, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. It should have been a source of belief and comfort and encouragement of their faith as they watched him leave. And then John 16, 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. 
again a little while and you will see me. They probably did not think that then three, that night that he would be betrayed and then 40 days later, or three days later rise from the dead only then to leave 40 days after that. But before his departure, Jesus gives his disciples authority as his representatives to make more disciples and as, to serve as witnesses of all that he had done. They were to proclaim the good news of salvation to all nations. He didn't leave them with nothing to do. He said, this is what you're going to do during my absence. He then tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to empower them along with the promise to one day return in the same manner. Now, this sounds interesting, right? It's something that maybe we haven't thought much about. But it serves as another reminder that Jesus was more than just a mere man or a religious leader or a cultural influencer. Once again, a supernatural event displays and demonstrates that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the, the redeemer of God's children. But one might ask, okay, this is great, but what does the ascension mean? Why should I celebrate it, you know, 1989 years later? What was its purpose? Why, why did he go that way? Why couldn't he have just disappeared as he has before? Or why did he have to leave at all in the first place? Could you imagine what this world would have been like if Jesus would have just stayed here and just lived forever? What can we learn from it? Is it really important to accept that Jesus ascended into heaven visibly, bodily, and confess this event? Is it that important? Or how does it fulfill or propel the redemption plan of the Trinity. The good people at gotquestions.org gives us seven reasons why, and I'm indebted to them, of why the ascension of Christ is meaningful. First, it signaled the end of his earthly ministry. Jesus was not going to spend eternity here on terra forma teaching us, at least not yet. God gave him 33 years to accomplish his ministry. 33 years to, to accomplish his passive obedience and his active obedience. God the Father had lovingly sent his, his, his son into the world at Bethlehem, and now the son was returning to the Father. This period of human limitations where he laid aside in Philippians his divinity or, or limited his divinity was at an end. Jesus is now back to full Jesus, so to speak, and I know that is confusing and probably I shouldn't have said it so just take it for your mind because that leads us into a whole lot of different areas but what we see is that Jesus's earthly ministry has ended it also number two it signified success in his earthly work all that he had come to do he had accomplished remember he says I come to do the father's will all that the father gives me I will do speaking of not only bringing in his sheep but all that he was to do on earth it was a success Number three, it marked the return of his heavenly glory, which I was trying to say a little bit early. Jesus' glory had been veiled during his sojourn on earth, with just that brief exception at the transfiguration where the disciples were able to see his glory. It symbolized his exaltation by the Father, the one with whom the Father is well pleased and was received up in honor and given a name above all names, as we see in Philippians. It allows him to go and prepare a place for us, which we'll look at a little bit later. It also indicates the beginning of his new work as our high priest and the mediator of the new covenant in which he prays and takes care of us. And then lastly, it set the pattern for his return. 
When Jesus comes to set up his kingdom, he will return as he left, literally, bodily and visibly in the clouds. And so with this, we understand that the ascension plays a part in scripture. Question 49 of the Heidelberg Catechism states this. You'll see it here on the monitor. The question is, how does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? We know how his death, how his crucifixion, how his resurrection, but how does his ascension benefit us? The Catechism provides three answers. First, he's our advocate in heaven before his Father. In other words, now he is at the right hand of the Father and he's advocating for us. He's detailing to the Father, hey, Father, there is no condemnation. He is one of mine. He prays to the Father for us as we pray to the Son. He then carries that to the Father who honors us and gives us our, our grace, common and saving grace because of the Son pleading for us. John, the beloved apostle, writes in his first letter, he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, he says, we have an advocate with the Father, for Jesus, or the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You can almost imagine we see in heaven as they look down and he sees you and I still in our rebellion and sin, even in our, in our saved state. We still sin, right? We still battle. We still fail. And you can imagine then you have the accuser of the brethren, Satan, and his demonic horde, who is always at the Father and saying, look at him. Look what he's doing. But then you have it on the other side, you have Jesus advocating for us. Who do you think God is going to listen to? He's going to listen to his son, his beloved son, in whom he's well pleased. So he spends in heaven and he's advocating for us as his brothers and sisters. Second, we see the second is we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. In other words, because he went bodily in the flesh, you and I too will one day be resurrected and have in the flesh be new. Third, he sends us his spirit as a counter pledge by whose power we seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and not the things on the earth. We're going to explore these things, those last two just a little bit more. With that, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 14. Because what we need to understand, the ascension is more than just an opening to the book of Acts. It's a supernatural event that you and I are being pointed to so that we may look to it for encouragement, for strength. In John chapter 14, the disciples are left speechless as Christ ascends into heaven. Jesus had begun preparing them for this day for some time. In John chapter 14, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave them several promises that are based on his ascension. If he did not ascend, these promises could not, would not come true. In John chapter 14, for number one, we're going to see that Jesus promises to prepare a place for them and then return. Look at verses 1 through 3 of John chapter 14. Jesus speaks to his disciples. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. <clears throat> believe in God. Believe in also me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I, not go, would, would I, have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
The ESV study Bible states that, trans, the, the, that the word translated rooms is not to meant to convey the idea of small places or spaces, but only to keep consistency in the metaphor of, of heaven as God's house. Not only does he promise to prepare a place for us, but he also promises to return. The Apostle Paul describes this event in 1 Thessalonians, as you see here in the monitor, when he promises, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The ascension is to drive our minds and to point our minds back to his return when we will be with him, when we will meet him in the air. He's also taking the time to prepare a place. Paul informs us that this promise should be a source of encouragement, joy, and anticipation. Even now, we're on Jesus' mind as he makes preparation for his bride. You can imagine maybe a, a groom, a husband-to-be, as he buys the new apartment or rents a new apartment or buys a, a house and he's going to bring his bride and he's preparing it, getting all things together, making his home ready for her, looking forward to that day that he will go and bring her to his home. This is what Jesus is doing. And I can almost imagine preparing the place for us what it might look like and what it might be like. It should bring our minds to wonderment and to scripture. Number two, as we look at John chapter 14, look at verses 12 through 14. As Jesus promises that we will do great works and he'll also answer our prayers. Truly, truly, Jesus says to them on that night, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Pastor John MacArthur notes that Jesus did not mean greater works in power. In other words, you and I may not be able to heal people, which it would be nice if we could. We may not walk on water or turn water to wine. We may not be able to disappear from one place and transport ourselves to another. But not greater works in power, but greater in extent. We have to remember that Jesus, while he was in the flesh, was limited by the flesh. He could only be at one place at one time. And yes, though he could have spoke and changed the whole world in the nature and healing all, he still was limited by physical space. The disciples, though, would become witnesses to all the world through the power of of the indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit and would bring many to salvation because they help her that's dwelling in them. The focus here is on spiritual rather than physical miracles. The book of Acts can, constitutes the beginning historical record of the impact that the Spirit-empowered disciples had on the world. These were men who turned the world upside down. The only way Jesus' disciples would be able to be used to do these greater works was through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he could not be sent, or he could not be sent as the helper until Jesus returned to the Father. So Jesus ascended so that the helper may come down. And with that in John 14, look at verse 16, we see that he then promises to send the Holy Spirit. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. 
even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. What a wonderful promise. He will be with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. If you have your Bible, underline that phrase. That's such a wonderful phrase. I will not leave you as orphans. As adopted children of God, he will not leave us sidelined. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you will also live. He would not leave his disciples helpless and stranded. He knows that they will be left in a world that's going to be hostile to their faith. All but one of the disciples will suffer martyrdom at the hands of those who hate Christ. The Holy Spirit will empower them for service, encourage them in ministry, and entreat the Father for their protection. In John chapter 16, verse 7, it's here on the monitor. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. We might have been left in a world that's very hostile to our faith. And it's becoming more and more so. But let us remember this, that we are not left alone. We are left with the helper, the Holy Spirit, who is not only with us, but is in us and empowers us, who seals us for that day when we receive our inheritance. But then if we drop down in John chapter 14, looking at verse 25, we see that Jesus promises a supernatural peace. For I think, how can I live in this world? Well, that's hostile. Well, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave you with, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. And going back, when you and I go back to Acts chapter, or going back to Luke, what happens when we go to Luke chapter 24, we read there at the end, it says, after Jesus left, the men spoke to him, and they went back and rejoiced. You and I are to rejoice in the promises of Christ. Here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're still looking up into the heavens, wondering when Christ will return. That's what the ascension also does. It brings us to remember that, wait a second, Christ has not come. What, what is going on? It says that we are to look for it, but he hasn't come. So what in the world is going on? The disciples who saw it, they've come and died. Their disciples have come and died. And so on and so forth, the last 1,989 years. So what are we to do? How does the ascension today still give us a hope? And not a wishful 
expression. Remember, hope is not a wishful thinking, but is a confident expectation that God will fulfill his promises. That's the hope that you and I have. And you and I need to have that type of hope that God will be faithful to accomplish his purposes, accomplish and fulfill his promises. What should you and I do while we're waiting for this promise return? We, we couldn't stand out there forever watching those balloons, even if we had magnifying glasses or some other type of way of, of continue watching them and seeing where they go. That'd just be fruitless. So what are we to do? We're not to be just stargazers waiting for Christ to come, as some cults and others do. But he says we are to wait. I want to share with you three things, and then we'll close. Three things that you and I should do. The number one is do not despair as you and I wait for Christ to come. Do not despair of the state of this world. If you're like me, I want Christ to come because I'm just tired of living with the presence of sin. Not only the presence of sin in my own life as I battle sin, as you and I do, that just becomes overwhelming at times. It becomes difficult. It can become weary, hence why he says, do not be weary in doing good. That's why he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. But yet I just said in the state, and here we are, and you and I can think of just what's going on to the news. Whether I open up the newspaper, turn on the TV, or go to my social media, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all I'm reminded of shootings, of children that are dying, people opening fire at a wedding, at a, at a wedding ceremony, or, or in Buffalo at a shopping center. We wonder, is it safe to go anywhere? We sit down and have the talks with our children and say, listen, there may be a come a time if there's a shooting in your school, just wipe blood on yourself and pretend you're dead. How do we live in a world that is hostile to our faith? Who says that if Roe versus Wade is turned down, that there will be blood in the streets, that they will stand up and rise up? We're already seeing pregnancy centers that are being firebombed and attacked. How do we live in a world in which even today, neighbors and family and even friends, we cannot even talk about politics or about culture? We're in our libraries. We have books that you and I would be shocked that the board members will not even allow to be read in front of them because of its, because of its content. But we say that it's okay for our children. And I would say for those of you who are parents, and have your kids in school, do you know what's in your school library? Are you aware? I don't know about you, but there's many times we can just despair of the state of this world. And we just want to say, Christ, come quickly. Can't take it anymore. We need a release valve. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, if you want to turn there quickly, for those of you who were champion sort of the drill, sort of the Lord drills, is that what sort of the what was it sort of the sort of the Bible sort sort or just sword drills? Second Peter chapter three verse nine. Peter says the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is Christ delaying his return? Because there are still some of his children that have not been brought in. There are still some of his sheep that are wandering out there. And it is our goal, it is our purpose as Christ's disciples to go and bring them in, to share with them the gospel. 
But he goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earthly works that are done on it will be exposed. John MacArthur once said, if you're worried about climate change and what humans can do to this world, wait until you see what God's plans for this world are. We're definitely going to have a climate problem in that day. So Christ's delay is so that others may come in. Some of you may have family, spouses, children, friends, neighbors, people you love and care for that have not yet come into the house of God. And and your desire is to, to see that. And though I want Christ to come, I want to make sure that my brothers, my sisters know Christ. And I pray for them daily. Lord, confirm their salvation. Bring them into, may they repent and turn in saving faith towards Christ. So let's use that time wisely. Instead of worrying and meditating on the state of the world, let's be praying for our president. Be praying for our governor. Let's be praying for those who make those decisions. But also be about the work of God. Knowing that in God's timing, he will come. Number two, so number one is do not despair of the state of this world. Number two, pursue holiness. Continuing then in 2 Peter chapter 3, look at verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be, ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? If this world and the things of this world are going to be destroyed, burned up, and will not pass into eternity, then you and I must live lives in godliness and holiness. What is striking to me is that we have pastors in the pulpits, we have people in the pews who are now saying that if you're if you're a lesbian or homosexual or LGBT or transgender, that those things of God and those things themselves will not be burned away, but they themselves will be redeemed and you will be like that in heaven. Let me give you a Greek word for that. It's called hogwash. That's exactly what that is. Let's not love the things of the world, neither the things that are in the world, but love the things of the Father. Amen? This is what he calls us to do, pursue holiness. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. As we live in this world, let us not compromise with this world. Let us not be drawn in to the world. Let us not seek comfort in the things that the world seeks comfort in. Let us not seek entertainment in the way that the world seeks entertainment. Let us not seek love in the way that the world seeks love. Instead, we're to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, that confident expectation, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to be pursuing holiness. Christ who gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. You and I are not just treading water. We are to be active in the mission that he gave his disciples. And number three, we're to wait with anticipation Christ's return. We're to wait with anticipation. Still in 2 Peter chapter 3, look at verse 12. He says we're to pursue lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hasting the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting 
for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. One day, the heavens, we will be brought together and live on terra forma. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Eden. And we will spend eternity with him. The ascension means that Christ is returning for his children. In Revelation, we get the picture of the new Jerusalem that descends from heaven and becomes between heaven and earth in which God and Christ will dwell forever. And we as his children. You and I are to wait with anticipation. We may not be sitting out there with our hands over our eyes. Oh, do you see anything? Are you looking? I don't know if you're, if you're like me, but every once in a while when you go outside, it's kind of a cloudy day. And all of a sudden, you'll see the clouds part. And you might see the, the sun rays coming up. Does that ever come to you? Do you ever think about Christ coming right through there? Or you see, you see the clouds and it almost looks, hey, does that look like a scroll? Is, that, is, that what's, is this is the time coming? One day they'll come. And we will join with them. As he says, come. Come to me, my bride. And we meet him in the air. What a wonderful time. Even today, 1,900 years later, you and I have an opportunity to think of the ascension that points us to do not despair, to live blameless in holiness, and to wait for his return. Currently, Jesus is in heaven. The scripture frequently pictures him at the right hand of the Father, a position of honor and authority. Christ is the head of the church, the giver of spiritual gifts, and the one who fills all in all. Let us join the disciples and the saints before us in looking towards the heavens for the return of Christ in power and glory and righteousness and justice. May we all say, Baronetha, come quickly, Lord. Amen? Amen. Close with just Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. The one who conquers Jesus promises, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. May that come quickly. I'm just going to ask you to just take a moment, just pause and consider to pray. I want you to respond. What does the ascension mean to you? In what way are you anticipating Christ's return? In what way is that uh, prompting you to live a life of holiness and blameless and godliness? In what way is that giving you strength and courage to face a world that is hostile. Do not despair. May Christ bring us all together once again. I'm going to ask Randy if he would come up in the worship team. I'm going to ask Randy to close us in prayer. And then, Brandon, before you play, I just have one announcement before you do so. Let's come together. Come on up. And let's pray. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.